Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 55 my name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find out more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. All right, on to this episode. Today we have our guest whose name is Joshua Shea. And he is going to share his recovery story. And his recovery story is about his struggle with pornography and alcoholism. And I really enjoyed listening to Joshua speak and share his story with such courage and openness. This is an issue that I've seen many times in my practice as a mental health clinician specializing in addictions. And so for him to just share frankly about what happened, how it happened, and how he got better, I just really appreciate it because it's a story that many people are struggling with and I think it can help a lot of people and his encouragement to get help. And it really shows that people can recover, they can find something on the other side of these addictions. So I was really thankful to have him on. But before we start, I just want to remind you that if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please go to iTunes and rate and review us. That really does help get us a lot of exposure and helps get this information out to others. And I would really appreciate it. Okay, let's begin this episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Joshua Shea, and he is going to talk about his recovery story and particularly about his recovery from porn addiction. Joshua, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, this is uh, Joshua Shea. I am from Central Maine. I had a 20 plus year addiction to both pornography and alcohol. And I, as of this recording, am uh, about four years and seven or eight months sober from both. 
Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. That's great. That's a lot of work. So what I wanted to do hopefully today is just really understand your story. And can you kind of talk about how for you, your addiction developed? Or I guess maybe a better question is, when did you realize I have a problem? You know, with both alcohol and pornography, I can tell you on day one that I was addicted. I may not have known it right then and there, but that first time that I got drunk when I was about 15 years old, or the first time that I saw hardcore pornography when I was 11 or 12, I knew that I had discovered something that would be my escape from the world, my soothing agent, my salve. This would be what it was like discovering, you know, the Ark of the Covenant for Indiana Jones. This was this was my this was my thing. And I knew it from day one. And from day one forward, whenever I could get my hands on pornography, I would. And whenever I could get my hands on alcohol, I would. So you knew right right away that this did something for you that was different. Can you describe that? Well, like I said, it was almost a giant relief. And I don't know exactly all the anxiety and stress that an 11-year-old or a 13-year-old feel, but I recognized that I had found something that would be a coping mechanism, even though I, you know, I didn't know what the coping mechanism was at the time. I had found something that just transported me somewhere else that was away from the world that I knew that made me feel better. That was, for lack of a better term, a crutch that I could lean on when things weren't going well. That was almost like an instant little boost that would make things feel better. Right. And I've I've heard that a lot in working with people who struggle with addiction. They say there was this moment that they knew that that they could tell that this drug was something different for them. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I can go into a casino and I can blow $20, $30 and then turn around and walk out. I don't have the gambling gene. I was never, I tried uh, different kinds of drugs here or there recreationally, never got into any of them. But when it came to alcohol, when it came to pornography, those were my things. That's what made me feel better. That's what delivered me from a place of anxiety, a place of stress. It was whether I was, you know, 14, 24, or 34, it was something that I could count on that would make me feel better. Right. So it worked. It did it. Yeah. And again, it, 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 what I really recognize from the most critical stage, the last, you know, six months to a year of both of those addictions, there was also the element of power involved there and control. And in a world that was spinning out of control, I could go online and I'm the master of all I survey there. If I want to see a certain type of pornography, well, that's my control that day. And nobody on the other side of the screen is going to say no. And if I happen to be, you know, drinking that day, you know, the alcohol never tells you to stop. The alcohol never tells you to make the bed or take out the trash or any of that. It just makes you feel better. And I had those two crutches for, like I said, 20 plus years and making me feel better when things weren't going well. So when did you start to realize, like, I, I know for a lot of people in addiction, they can look back and they can say, yeah, I can see now how this was something that was so different. But then denial kicks in and they keep going, yeah, but I'm not going to give this up yet. And, but then their denial, as, as their disease progresses, they start to kind of realize like, wait a minute, I can't hide from this. Something else is going on. Well, with me, there was kind of a perfect storm of events happening where I 
about a eight, nine months before, you know, it really hit the fan, I pulled myself off of my medication for bipolar disorder. And I'd been on these meds for about 15 years. This was when I was 36 years old. I pulled myself off the meds because things were going poorly with my business. I was the publisher of a very popular magazine in central Maine. I was also the founder of one of Northern New England's largest film festivals. And on top of that, I was also on my uh, city council. So I was incredibly busy. I couldn't keep up with things and cracks started forming. Uh, I started to see revenues drop at the magazine. I'm not a very good business person, so I didn't know what to do about it. I decided, really, which was the kickoff to everything imploding, to pull myself off of my bipolar medication. I thought that if I could tap into those two or three hours that I was sleeping, that I would be able to figure out a way to save my company, to turn everything around, to be riding right back up high on top. And unfortunately, what happened was, with the bipolar meds disappearing, my alcoholism and my porn use absolutely exploded. And that's when I came to recognize that these had been, you know, I don't want to say low level, but these had been somewhat uh, manageable addictions for so long. But at the very end, when I was drinking really almost around the clock, and when I was looking at pornography multiple times per day, not just passively looking at pornography, but actually going into chat rooms and talking with women, which I'd never done before, that's when I realized something was out of control. And I didn't know what was going to get me. I didn't know if it was the porn or the drinking or that I was going to lose my job and just ruin everything professionally. Um, I was estranged pretty hard from my wife and kids at the time. Something was going to get me. I knew that there were just too many problems in my life that I didn't have the first clue how to fix that in the end, something was going to get me. I just didn't know what it was. So in in that, in all that stress, and this is pretty common with addiction, is you run back to the addiction that causes the unmanageability and it amplifies that unmanageability and it continues to go. Oh, it's ironic when you look at it. You know, it's you're pouring gasoline on a fire that you think you're pouring water on. Right, right. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, and it was it was one of these things where I knew for a while that I had had issues with alcohol. They had popped up here and there throughout my life. I don't think I ever even heard the term porn addiction prior to my big fall that I had. I, it took me, honestly, after I was arrested, um, I blamed everything on the alcohol. It took me another good eight, nine months of one-on-one therapy, of doing my own research, before I was willing to admit that I actually had a porn addiction and went and sought help for it at a uh, rehabilitation center. So you could kind of see it. So there was a part of you that kind of knew, but it wasn't until the consequences caught up to you that you had to actually face it? I never dealt with consequences in my life. My, I was one of these guys who I had enough charisma. I was charming enough that I lived my life by the idea, go ahead and do what you want and then flash your pearly whites and say sorry if it goes bad instead of asking for permission. Because when you ask for permission, most of the time people say no. So just go ahead and do what you want anyway and deal with the repercussions. And I never had to deal with very strong repercussions towards anything in my life. I got what I wanted. 
So you were able to manage it really well. Oh, yeah. And I hear that a lot for a lot of addicts. You know, it's like, I, I got away with it. I was able to get away with it until. Yeah, I think that addicts are the best liars, the best manipulators. We know how to say what we need to say. And there's nothing like pride standing in our way. There's nothing like morality standing in our way. We will say and do what we need to say and do to feed the demon and not suffer the consequences from other people. So what do you think, if you look back now, that demon, what were you feeding? What, was, what were you hiding from? Uh, you know, I think it was a kind of a mix of things. One of the things that ha- started to happen right as I entered recovery was that I had a slew of, I don't want to say flashbacks, but repressed memories start to come to the surface of some abuse that I suffered as a child. I think that that played a bigger role than I've even wanted to, to still really go deep and, and, and look at because there's nothing I can do about it. So I, I don't go too, too deep on looking at that stuff because I can't change it. But I think that it was really about control. And I either fooled myself or I legitimately had a lot of control in my life. From 25 years old on, I owned my own companies. That allowed me to have control over other people. That allowed me to have control over my schedule. I created these little realities for myself where I was in control. And I think that when I felt out of control, if I went to a awards dinner, then there's 500 people there. The first thing I did was hit the bar so I could get a little bit of that liquid social courage into me. I, I might even have a couple beers before I actually got there to uh, get that into me because I needed some of that social lubrication to help me there. I, When things were going bad with the companies and I was worried about how am I going to pay payroll next week or the week after that, how am I going to pay for printing of the magazine? Well, if I want to forget about this for a few minutes, the best thing for me to do is just drink. And all of a sudden, there for some reason, I'm not thinking about it. Or hop online and look at pornography. All of a sudden, I'm not thinking about it. These two things were the only things that brought me to another place that allowed me to run from the stressors and the anxiety caused by those stressors. Right. I mean, and, and if you're looking at porn and you're in arousal, you're not having to think about all of these problems. You're not there for a while anyway. No, exactly. And it got to the point with the pornography where it wasn't even about arousal. When I was in the chat rooms, it was about getting women to do what I wanted them to do. If I found a woman who wanted to rip off her top right away, that wasn't fun for me. That wasn't anything. That that was not an accomplishment. I wanted to find somebody who said they would never do something like that. And then over the course of two or three hours, slowly manipulate them, break them down, take the information that they were telling me as I'm talking to you on half my computer screen. I'm doing all kinds of research on the other half of my computer screen. And I'm it's grooming, it's predatory, but it also gives you a great sense of control. And when I, in a real life where I was losing control over everything, relationships with those close to me, my businesses, losing control over really, I felt everything. I knew everything was coming to an end at some point. I knew that things were just too messed up to keep going. 
but it allowed me for an hour or two hours in the evening or early morning. I'd usually be doing this two or three in the morning. It allowed me to feel controlled, and I didn't feel that anywhere else in my life. And that's really what it was. It wasn't about a surrogacy for sex. It wasn't about looking at you know pretty girls. It was about just exercising control over somebody else. Right. And, and I hear that a lot in, in working people with people who are struggling with sex or porn addiction. A lot of times it's not necessarily about the sex, although it's arousing. It really is about this sense of um, it can be control or it's something to, it's almost like it's the opposite of what they're feeling in that moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely does. And that's, that's what it was. It allowed me to flip the script. And I couldn't do that in my regular life. I was used to a life where people adored me and people needed me for things and people liked me and I was in control and that had really just disappeared. And the only place I could find it was, you know, with a Red Bull and tequila in one hand and my keyboard, you know, in in the other hand, online, trying to find some little bit of control in my life and a little bit of power. If I had that little bit of power, if I exerted that control over someone, if I got them to bend to my will, that was a successful night. I went to bed feeling good. If it was you know, two hours of nobody willing to talk to me, I went to bed feeling like I was the loser I felt like the rest of the day. Right, right. So you can kind of counteract that. Yeah. So- Okay, so what was, I I guess you call it the day of reckoning where you, all of a sudden, you couldn't hide from it anymore? No, it was a, it was March 20th, 2014. I was sitting at my kitchen table. It was about 10 in the morning and I had, I was doing a little bit of work from home and uh, I looked out onto the street, three cars and a van pulled up. And you don't have to be an aficionado of cop shows from the 1970s to know what an unmarked car looks like. It was very clear what it was. I had no idea why they were there. I wondered if I had done something financially screwy with my businesses. I wondered if I had not filed some kind of tax form. I mean, immediately went to the, I went to the businesses. And then I also quickly thought to myself, I wonder if somebody's dead, but then realized that many people wouldn't show up. And when got to the door. It was the Maine State Police. And, you know, very quickly, they uh, let me know that uh, they had reason to suspect that I had been involved with uh, child pornography and that I had been talking with someone who was underage online. And it didn't take very long with an interview with them and them, you know, presenting me evidence and telling me what was going on that one of those women that I talked to in a chat room was not actually a woman. She was a teenage girl. And, uh, they got me on that. I wasn't asking for IDs. I didn't remember this person specifically when they showed me some screen captures, but you know that's no excuse. I, I take full, full uh, responsibility for what I did. I let my mental health get to the point where I wouldn't ask somebody how old they are online. I was engaging in behavior that was not something that a married man should do. And they nailed me. They they got me, and you know there, there was not much I could say about it. But I knew the moment they got to my door, I, I said two things to myself. I right away I said, "Oh my God, my life is going to change forever." And then I said to myself about one second later, "Oh, thank God, my life is about to change forever." The the owners of the magazine, I, I was booked that day. My wife bailed me out. I was only in in jail for about forty five minutes. 
I was fired from the magazine that night by my co-owners. That was a great relief off my shoulders. That was the best news I had all day. Unfortunately, there were TV cameras involved. There was newspaper involved. Because of my standing in the community, this was a major news story. And it was for the two years between my arrest and my eventual sentencing. But during those two years was when I went and, and really started getting the recovery that's led me to today. But yeah, it was, uh, it was police at my door. It was uh, me just showing no good sense in going into those chat rooms. And, you know, I should have recognized that people would be there who were underage or who shouldn't be there. As long as it looked like a woman that was good enough to me, and that cannot be the standard by which we judge upon. Right, right. So it, I mean, going into the internet pornography, it took you to a really, really dark space. Absolutely. I found a website where you talk to somebody like a, much, much like Skype, although it, it's, it's, it's not quite Skype, where you're talking to someone and if you don't like who you're talking to, you hit a button and the next person comes up. They can also, if they don't like who they're talking to, hit a button and the next person comes up for them. And uh, I figured out how to go around the system instead of women's or men, anybody who's on, instead of people seeing a 37-year-old guy who looked very bad because of all the drinking and lack of sleep, I was able to find a video of a good-looking 22, 23-year-old guy who was just typing away, and he was the kind of guy that girls stopped to talk to. And so I had that video playing. And that, so the woman never saw me. It was, it was completely manipulative, completely. It was like to catch a predator meets catfish. I mean, it was just not, it was, uh, I look back and I can't believe that I did that. Right. Yeah. And I, I hear a lot of, you know, what, what you're saying, I think with people, especially when they bring in the porn addiction and, and I, I think other addictions too, it's so an antithesis of their values, their underlying deeper values and they look back with recovery, not at the time, but with recovery of just going, I, I can't believe I was there. I can't believe I made those choices. Well, and one of the things is that, you know, I got in trouble because this one person was underage, but I did this to dozens of people who were of age. And when, I, when I've had to answer for my, you know, legal sins, I always, you know, when talking with my therapist or in doing shows like this, I always drive home the point, you know, okay, so one was a teenager, but Dozens were 23 or 33 or 43. That doesn't make what I did any better. Right. You know, that, that was, it was really messed up regardless of what their age was that I allowed myself to get to this point where this kind of behavior was what I saw as a coping mechanism and a way to make myself feel better. And that's just heinous wrong behavior. Definitely. Definitely. And it's good that being able to own it and being able to really look at that, that's a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of humility. Well, and it takes time. It takes time to get to where I am now that I fully accept it. I know that I have probably scarred some people out there that I'll never know about. And that's part of the reason that's driven me to come and do shows like yours, to write my book, to, to you know start doing some presentations in libraries and churches, is that I just have this sick feeling over what I did. And if I can somehow create less victims in the world than I created. Maybe it overall can be a net good. I don't know, but feels like uh, 
I, I can't, like you said, I can't believe I got to the point that I did this and I don't want anybody else to get to this point, either on the victim or the perpetrator end. Right. And you, you said something earlier I wanted to kind of go back to. You said, you know, there was a moment when they came to the door. You said, oh my goodness, my life is going to change. And then the other second you said, oh my goodness, my life is going to change. Thank God. Tell me about that, that shift. I recognized that a lot of the stressors in my life were going to be gone immediately. Now, I had I, my magazine, I knew I probably had about four to six months left to run it or to keep it solvent unless something else happened. And I didn't know what that was going to be. And I was really butting heads with my partners at the time over how we were going to keep the magazine running. With this happening, this took that stress right away from me. The film festival, which was only about two or three weeks away from happening, got canceled that day. I knew that I was going to finally be outed for my alcoholism and for my porn addiction. And I knew I could finally say, hey, I need to go get help. Or somebody would say to me, hey, go get help. Because I was doing it by myself. I was doing it alone. So you know, thank God that all these stressors are being pulled away from me. And I had no idea how they'd be pulled away. And thank God that I'm now, the spotlight is on me and I can hopefully get some help for this stuff. It was from the day I was uh, arrested, 10 days later, I was in Palm Springs, California at alcohol rehab. I knew that I needed help. And, but I'm not the kind of person who asks for help. So when this happened, I can't picture any other way of this going down to work out as well as it did. My family could have tried to take me to the side and done a uh, intervention for my alcoholism and I would have just laughed at them. And Or my, my co-workers could have uh, fired me or my co-owners could have fired me from my job, but that wasn't going to stop the porn or the alcohol. I needed something to come in and really just demolish everything in one fell swoop. And short of the law, I don't know what would have done that. So that's why I say thank God is because they gave me a clean slate in a way that I don't think any other situation could have. Right. Looking back, you can see that now that you needed that kind of event to actually reach out for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, for a while leading up to it, I knew I was on a collision course with some kind of disaster. If the police hadn't intervened, if nothing would have happened, I I don't know that I'd be doing these interviews right now. I I give even odds that I'd be dead because I could not keep living the way I was. Statistically speaking, I probably should have driven into the side of a building or driven into another car long before I got nailed for any pornography problem. But I knew something was going to happen to me. I just had no idea what it was going to be. And I've actually talked to the police officer who's arrested me and uh, thanked him for it. Told you know he he told me when he was bringing me to the police station, you may actually call me and thank me one day for this. And uh, it took about three and a half years, but I did end up calling him and, and saying thank you. You're right. Uh, this was while it was obviously very traumatic. It was the best thing that could have happened to me. And so once you started to go down that road, what do you think you needed to do next? How did you start to get better? 
Well, as, as I mentioned, after the day after I was arrested, I went and met with my lawyer for the first time. And I went with my wife and my father. And he, one of his first questions was, do you have any kind of chemical or drug issues? And I said, well, I drink a bit. Both my, my uh, father and my wife said, no, you drink a lot. And you drink as a stress relief. You don't drink recreationally. Um, I, I was never the person who drank at holiday family parties because I never saw the reason to have one or two. If I was going to drink, I was going to have eight or ten. So I was a problem drinker, and that was very clear. I hadn't even really thought about porn addiction at that point. He's, my lawyer said, well, we need to build a resume for the judge that looks as good as possible. And I said, well, okay, whatever, I'll go. Go send me for send me for 28 days like in the Sandra Bullock movie, and I can fake it, and I'll say, okay, this was good. Right. You know, I'll, I'll fake it till I make it. That's cool. Well, it took me about eight days in rehab to realize, holy crap, they are exactly talking about me. They, they, they built rehab for people like me, people who need to be taken out of a situation far away, be put with a bunch of people who they might avoid, cross the street to avoid in real life and talk about the real problems that are hitting you. And like I said, it was probably about seven, eight days before I embraced it. But instead of spending 28 days there, I actually spent 70. Wow. And I needed it. I needed every step of the way. Uh, about halfway through my time there, I started to see a CSAT off campus and he helped me. I, this was when I was starting to have uh, dreams and recollections of things that had happened to me as a kid. Uh, he helped guide me through the beginning of those. We started talking about my pornography use. And that's when I started to accept the fact that maybe if, if I didn't have a full-blown pornography addiction, I certainly had some sexual issues. And once I had left California after those 10 weeks and got back to Maine, I started seeing a professional therapist one-on-one -on -one a couple times a week. We dealt with a lot of the sexual issues, a lot of the issues of abuse when I was a kid. And I started to ultimately take some of these little puzzle pieces that I'd always, I guess, sort of forced apart and didn't realize it. And now I was starting to bring them closer together and really begin to understand why I turned into the person I turned into and, you know, how much of it was my DNA, how much of it was my environment and how much of it was just really dumb choices on my part. And that was, that was the early part of my road to recovery. Keeping in mind that while this was all happening, I was also going through the legal system. As I mentioned, it was 22 months between the day I was arrested and the day that I was sentenced. And when I went into jail in January of 2016, I, I uh, served six months. When I went into jail, I was ironically the healthiest version of myself that I had ever been. They weren't locking up the guy who got uh, online and did that stupid stuff. They were locking away someone who had spent two years working full-time to make himself better. So once I got there, I saw that I could do a lot of pacing. I could watch a lot of superhero movies. I could learn how to play spades and other card games, or I could do something worthwhile. So I sat there and I wrote the first draft of my book. Wow. So with all of that work, Sounds like you really had to to dig in. You you really made that choice to really say this is every I have to do this. 
Well, and I was I was very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I had the means, and I also had parents who had the means to help out to send me to alcohol rehab for 70 days uh, on the other side of the country. When I went to rehab for porn addiction, um, I went in Texas, and I was there for seven weeks. So I was gone 17 weeks of that time paying big money to go to those facilities. And thank God that I was able to have it. I was working as a freelance writer and ghost writer here and there in between. That allowed me to have my own schedule so I could go and have three hours of therapy a week. So I could go to 12-step meetings any time of the day that I wanted. That allowed me to do as much research reading about addiction and pornography addiction specifically you know, so I was very fortunate that I was able to work on my mental health and put the pieces of this puzzle together in almost a full-time manner for two years. I know mo- most people are just not lucky enough to have that time or the resources, but that really, that and uh, my family staying by my side uh, is really what led me to what I think was a uh, a fast track to recovery. Right. Right, definitely. So there was there was something in there. You had the resource, and that's definitely important consideration that a lot of people don't have. But there, it also sounds like there was a part of you that said, "This is I have to do this. I can't. I I have to go deep into therapy. I have to go deep into twelve step. I have to do this." Well, and that first week between seeing my lawyer. Actually, it was a little more than about two weeks. First being here, and then that first week of rehab, telling myself that I was going to build a great resume and impress a judge. That's why I was doing it. And it only took about a week for me to sit there and realize, okay, no matter whether the judge gives me no time in jail, six months in jail, or six years in jail, I'm going to get out at some point. And I don't want to be the same unhealthy person. I need to get the help that I can live with myself after all of this is done. One day in the distant future, all the jail will be done, all the probation will be done, and I'll be left sitting there. And I don't want to be the same broken person. I can't be the same broken person because that broken person didn't have a lot of time left on the clock. I needed to fix it. And now I look back and it's it's almost you know comical that I thought that I didn't have a problem and I was just going to fake the whole rehab thing. I thank God that it only took me a week to wake up and recognize I need to uh, I need to take part in this because this is going to save my life and give me a better life. Wow, that's great, and and I think that's the that moment when people are struggling with addiction. That moment where they realize, like, I have to dig in. I have to do this. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because at rehab you see the people who don't reach that point or can't reach that point or run from that point. And it's so tragic seeing someone who you know needs help, who you know wants help, but they just for whatever reason are not at that place yet. That happens to a lot of people at rehab. And like I said, it's tragic when you see it. Yeah, and you can see that there's that shift that people take that then says, I'm ready to go to the hard places. I'm ready to look at the hard things in my life um, from a willingness. And you know what? I I think what's good is that there was a naivete with me that uh, I didn't know what was happening next. 
let's just keep going with it. And, you know, this is, I, I'm a journalist by trade. I like things that are interesting. I like new processes. I like trying things for a first time. So I was always up for whatever a therapist or a counselor wanted to do. But yeah, when you start going to those hard places, it's gut-wrenching. I mean, it is, it is truly transformative, truly gut-wrenching. But hard and difficult and painful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me about your life now after digging in, doing all this therapy, really embracing recovery. Tell me about your life now. My life now is so much simpler than it used to be. I really lived for the adoration of others. I have uh, worked myself to a point where I genuinely don't care what most others think of me anymore. I care about what my family thinks of me, which is ironic because they were the only people I didn't care about back then. And I don't know exactly. I think that there was definitely some narcissistic tendencies there but I've got that stuff under control. I learned really how I got to where I was. And like I said, I think it's a combination of DNA, of how you're raised and the stupid decisions you make along the way. I've been able to really take a long look and analyze those so I don't make those same kinds of mistakes. I have tools by which I can... I find it harder to not drink than I find it to not look at porn. Not looking at porn is actually not that hard to me. And I almost feel bad admitting that, but it's not that rough. Not drinking is a lot harder. When I had to face that first fall without drinking and it was football season, I learned that I had to not hang out with my friends during football season anymore. I watch football games by myself. You have to learn to make the changes in your life that are going to be conducive to your recovery. If you're not willing to make those changes, you're not going to recover. And ultimately, whatever 12 steps you have, whatever God you believe in, whatever program you've been through, it all comes down to the same thing. It comes down to commitment. And making a commitment that no matter what, you're going to face this. And some days that's easy. I don't even think about it. And there are still days where it is like, all I want is a beer. All I want to do is go look at some porn online. That that will make me feel better. And those are the days where I have to really reaffirm my commitment, You know, use the tools that I have, hang out with my family, go do something else, divert my attention, whatever it is I, I might need to do at that point. Simply going to another room and reading a book, whatever it is that I need in that moment, I just have to stay committed. And that ultimately, I believe, is what every successful addict comes to terms with is commitment. And when people say, I can't make a commitment, well, you make a commitment to go to work every day. You know, you make a commitment to feed your kids and clothe your kids. You make commitments all the time. Not getting off of whatever your addiction is, you're not willing to make that commitment yet. And I know it's not that simple and that basic, but I do think in the grand scheme of things, that's what it comes down to is commitment. Yeah, and I think you're you're absolutely right. Joshua, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story on the Addicted Mind podcast. I really appreciate it. I think you've said some great points about recovery and and how it is work, but there's something on the other side. And something better on the other side. And I'll tell you, I look back at those two stints in rehab as some of the most wonderful, grueling, but wonderful transformative experiences of my life where I met people who 
I haven't maintained a lot of friendships from rehab for various reasons, but being there with those people at that time, I've been told by some military people that uh, being in a foxhole and being in rehab are very similar because you're with people who you'd never be around any other time of life and you have to make it work. And, you know, it was wonderful. And if anybody does have the means by which to go, I think that it sped up my recovery, as I mentioned, so much more than uh, just a 12-step meeting or just a one-on-one once a week with a therapist was going to do. Awesome. Is there anything you would like to add if anybody out there is listening to this podcast and they're struggling, what would you want to tell them? Two things. Number one, uh, if you are struggling, get help. As I mentioned, my addiction ultimately led to engaging a teenager in a chat room. And for 99.8% of the time that I was an addict, that would not have been possible. But I did get to that point. And if I can get to that point, anybody can get to that point. So get yourself some help before you end up in a place where you don't even know how you got there. And the second thing I would actually say is to non-addicts is uh, try not to judge and stereotype who you think an addict is because they come in every shape and size. And I've met men, women, young, old, rich, poor, smart, dumb as a stump, every color of the rainbow. There is no stereotypical porn addict. Anybody can be a porn addict. And the statistics suggest that there are a lot more out there than we even want to talk about, which is why I named my book, The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. Right. So how can people find out more information about you? If they want to know more about you and your book, how can they find that information? Go right to my website. I've got links that go, that head back to Amazon. And my website also has stories of my recovery. The book is really about my uh, fall into addiction. The website is about my recovery. It's recoveringpornaddict.com. Um, that's recoveringpornaddict.com. If you're looking for any resources, whether it be 12-step groups, online forums, uh, rehabs, there's also a page full of resources on the site there that can help you out. So um, that's the best place to go, recoveringpornaddict.com. Awesome. And I'll link all that in the show notes as well. So Joshua, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. You know, a lot of people still are squeamish about this. They still don't want to talk about it and pretend it doesn't exist. I thank you for giving me the platform. We need to have more open discussion about porn addiction in this country. Thanks. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to Joshua's story. And you can find all the information about this podcast at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 55. And just a little reminder, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. I really appreciate it. Also, think about joining our Facebook group at the Addicted Mind podcast on Facebook. You can just do a search and find us there, or there's a link on our website as well, theaddictedmind.com. Be a great place to get more information about addiction treatment, and how you can get help if you need it or help for someone you love. So until next week, have a wonderful day.
I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how-tos for navigating all the things sober, from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories, and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.